Bibles now and open them to 1 John chapter 5. And I am happy for all of you that have come out to the Bible study tonight. It's always a pleasure to open God's Word. And no matter where we choose to open the Bible and study about it, God always has something there for us. And we're always blessed by God's truth. And the text that we're reading tonight is a very important one. Uh, Perhaps it could be one of the most important scriptures in the Bible. Uh, We're discussing the confirmation of the Christ, and we're going to continue our study in verses 6 through 8 in this fifth chapter. But I want to start reading in verse number 5, just to get us a little run here. Verse number 5 is where we'll start. Uh, John says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. I don't think that I have to tell you that the Bible is a miraculous book. As you know, it was written over a period of about 1,500 years. There were 40 different authors that that have written scripture. And these are sacred writings that the Holy Ghost has inspired men to write. And we know that God is the author of the scriptures because over that long period of time with 40 different men that are writing, all of them contribute something to the story of Jesus Christ and the revelation of him, uh, the revelation or manifestation of him as God in the flesh. In some way, all scriptures are going to come back around to the story of Jesus Christ or have something to do with that. And the way that the writers of the Bible do this is not always by a direct method. Uh, Sometimes it's indirect. For instance, it's very hard for us to find Jesus in the book of Esther. Uh, I picked that one out because the entire book of Esther doesn't even mention God. And so you might even want, you might wonder, well, how is it that you could get anything about Jesus Christ out of the book of Esther when it doesn't even mention God? Well, if that was the only book that God gave us, then, of course, it would be very difficult for us to get the information we need there. But when you take Esther and you put that into the big picture, you see how that God had providentially protected his people from destruction in order that Jesus would be born of the Jews. The Messiah must be born from the tribe of Judah. That's what scripture says. And that is a fact that we learn from the book of Genesis written a thousand years before Esther. So Esther then becomes a link in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Esther is as much a central theme of Uh, part of the Bible, much of the central theme of the Bible as any other book, even though it doesn't mention God. And there are many other parts of the Bible that fit into the Revelation, and they do that indirectly. And we love to study those indirect texts because, uh, to me, it's kind of fun to find out the many, many ways and the connections that are made in Scripture to show us who Jesus is. Well, we come to this fifth chapter 
in the epistle of 1 John, and it's our privilege here to study a portion of Scripture that is a direct text. It directly affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. And that affirmation of Christ is not found in the many wonders that Christ did, not in the miracles that he did. It's not by the testimony of the apostles. It's not the record of the prophets. But the testimony that we have here comes from God. And that's why it makes these verses so important. Uh, This is why this part of 1 John is one of the most important texts in the Bible, because God is the one who is the witness here. God is the one who confirms the Christ. God is the ultimate authority. And even though there are many witnesses to the truth about Jesus, the one that counts the most, the one that can never be disputed on any level, is the testimony of God. Now, I'd like to back up just a little bit to last week's message to kind of get us a firm footing here on God's witness of Christ. And the way that God does this uh, and the way that John explains it here is a matter of dispute to Bible scholars. John says that God has testified of Christ in three ways, and those three ways are by the water and by the blood and by the Spirit. Now, last week, remember, we talked about the word witness, and you need to look for the word witness in the Scripture. That's the testimony of God. Now, that's what John says as far as what this witness is, and there isn't much disagreement on the Spirit being a witness of Christ, but there is a lot of disagreement on the water and the blood. And so to catch you up a little bit from last week, we discussed the interpretations of the text. What does John mean when he says water, and what does he mean when he says the blood? Now, those two things are part of God's evidence, and so to understand the way that God testified concerning Jesus, we do have to find out what John meant by those two words. And just very quickly, there are four major interpretations that give us two possibilities. The possibilities are that one of those four interpretations is correct, And the other possibility is that none of them are correct. Well, I happen to think there is one of these interpretations that's better than the rest, and I think it answers to what John has in mind when he talks about God testifying of Christ. Now, I'm going to run down the wrong ones for you first, and if you want more details about this, you can refer to the last message. I haven't provided any blanks on the listening sheet tonight like we did last week. So I'm just going to give these to you rather quickly, and then we'll go on. There are some that believe that the water and the blood refer to sacraments. That water refers to our baptism and the blood refers to the Lord's Supper. We don't believe in sacraments, so we would turn, uh, change that terminology somewhat to say that the ordinances, that the ordinances that God gave to the church, that of water baptism and of the Lord's Supper, that those are the two ways that witness, that God witnessed of Christ. And, of course, again, the water refers to baptism and the blood would refer to the uh, wine or grape juice that's used to represent the blood of Christ in the supper. The second view says that the water and blood refer to an incident that happened at the cross. And that's when the soldier came and pierced the side of Jesus to make sure that he was dead. And the Bible says that when that spear pierced his side, that there was blood and water that flowed from the womb, from the wound rather. And and the third view, though, is, is a little bit closer to the truth. And this is a view that says that the water refers to purification. The blood refers to the pardoning and cleansing power of Christ's blood. Just like we sing, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 
And if I was going to choose among those first three, that's probably the one that I would take. But I don't have to make that choice because there is a better explanation. There is a more direct way in which God testified about Christ, and that would be the two incidents that bookend Christ's ministry. Now, one is when his ministry started, and the other is when his ministry ended. And what happened when Jesus began his ministry? Well, he was baptized by John the Baptist. And before that, Jesus performed no miracles. He did no preaching. He had no disciples. It wasn't until John baptized him that his ministry began. And that baptism was the inauguration of Christ into his ministry. And when he was baptized, God testified of him. The Spirit of God descended on him uh, from heaven like a dove. And then there was a voice that came from heaven. It was the voice of God the Father that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So God the Father spoke. And the people heard that, and that was the witness of God that occurred at the water baptism of Jesus. But then John says that Jesus came not by water only, but he came also by the blood. And so you have the second incident, the important incident of Christ's life, and that would actually be his death. He died on the cross, and he shed his blood, and then after three days he was in the tomb. God raised him up from the dead, and that was the proof that he is the Christ. Now, if you remember, it was very important that John should make that point concerning water and blood because there were false teachers that denied that Jesus was the God-man, and they believed that God's Spirit had come upon a man that was named Jesus at his baptism, and then just before the cross, when it was time for him to die, that the Holy Spirit left him, which leaves us with this proposition that Jesus is not the incarnate Son of God. So John makes the point of water and blood to show that Jesus was God at his baptism and he was also God while he was on the cross. So his baptism and his death followed by the resurrection are God's witness of the truth of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So you have that controversy about verse number 6 and so I hope that we've solved that mystery of water and blood and have come to the right conclusion. But that's not the end of the controversy that we have about this passage. There's also controversy about verse number 7 and part of verse number 8. So we're going to take a a brief look at that as number 2, the inconsistencies of the text. In verse number 7, John writes, "...for there are three that bear record in heaven." the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in in the earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Starting at in heaven in verse number 7 and ending at in earth in verse number 8, there are some who say that this should not be in the Bible. Now, although the statement is true, it is absolute truth what's written there, There are those who say that John was not the author of that statement, but it's something that was added to the text by someone else at a later date. And this is called the Johannine comma. Johannine comma. And there are two important questions that we need to answer concerning this particular portion of Scripture. Just a couple that I want to deal with tonight. And the first one is, should it be included or excluded? Is this actually a part of the Scripture or is it not? 
Now, the King James Version includes that, obviously, because we've just read it. But there are other translations that don't have that or don't include that particular portion of Scripture. Uh, Even if you have a King James Bible and you have a center reference column or you have a King James Study Bible, there will be a note in it something like this. And I'm reading this from the King James Schofield Study Bible. It says, it is generally agreed that verse number 7 has no real authority and has been inserted. Now, I'd like you to look at your Bible, if you have the King James Version. I think probably most of you do. And I want to read to you from a couple of other translations that are typical of those that exclude the Johannine comma. Now, the first one is from the American Standard Version, and starting with verse number 6, and and I think it's on the screen there behind me as well, but if you want to look at your Bible and see the difference, here's how the American Standard Version reads. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three who bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. And then reading from the English Standard Version, it says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so you can see that in both of those translations, they take out the part about the testimony in heaven, which are the Father, the Word, which corresponds to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So who's right about it? Do we include this or do we exclude it? Well, a detailed answer to that question is really beyond the scope of our study tonight. But so I'm just going to touch on this and and answer this question and how you answer it has some significant consequences. Now for those that believe that nothing but inspired scripture could ever enter into the text through the King James translators, and those that believe that the King James translation is a perfect translation, then you would have to say there's no possibility that you could exclude this verse. It has to be there, they would say, because God protected the Greek manuscripts and uh, that the, the manuscripts from which the King James was translated. And so if that isn't true, then we would have a Bible that has the possibility of having many different portions of it that are not inspired or uninspired pa- uh, passages, and some of those could affect some, some very important doctrines. Now, those that disagree with that statement believe that the King James translators did not have the best manuscripts, that there were earlier texts that were not available to the King James translators, and, and so uh, they didn't include this particular portion of the Scripture, and the King James translators didn't have that uh, availability of those manuscripts to find out that they should have left it out. It's also true that in the first compilation of the Greek manuscripts that became the basis for the King James Version, and those were compiled uh, much earlier than the King James was translated, it's, it is true that in those, those first compilations of the Greek manuscripts that the Johannine comma was not included. It was added to a later edition. 
And somebody might tell you, well, that's because they realized that it was mistakenly left out. And then there are others who say, well, no, it was pressure that was applied to put it in because it had been a part of so many other translations, especially the Latin Vulgate, that uh, it was part of those translations. And even though someone did put it in a little bit later, the people wanted to see it there. And so it became included in the, uh, in the translation of the King James. And for some people, that inclusion of this verse is so important that without it, they, they lose, uh, would say, well, you'd lose all confidence that the King James Version is the Word of God. I mean, do we have what God said or do we not? Do we trust the manuscripts that made up the King James Version or do we use other manuscripts that omit the Johannine comma? Now, I, of course, would come down on the side that it should be included. But I'll tell you something about my opinion. I'm not a textual scholar. And so if you were to ask me to prove or disprove beyond a doubt which side is right in the debate, I would be unable to do that. And about 99% of preachers who argue for the King James translation are not textual critics either. Neither could they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt it should or should not be there. But don't despair because I don't have to be a textual critic to observe that God is well capable of preserving his word. And I don't think, as some do, that God inspired the King James translators. Uh, They didn't believe that. But I do believe that it was possible for God to give us an accurate Bible and that he's given us something that we've been using for over 400 years now to bring people to Christ. Now, what I don't agree with is I don't agree with people who say that you can't update the language of the King James Bible, because if you do that, then it would take away from the Word of God. I believe that you could do an updated version. In fact, every preacher that I know of that preaches from the King James updates the language when they do an explanation of the text. And so if you say, well, you can't update the translation, and that would be wrong because you changed the Word of God, then how would it be possible for us to stand behind a pulpit and change it as we explain what that text means? I mean, that's a position that makes no sense at all. But the real problem here is that everyone who's ever tried to update the language has done more than just update the language. What they've done is they've chopped up the scriptures and they've taken things out of it that should have been there and changed things that should not be changed. And we don't have any authority to do that. And until somebody comes along and does a good job at it and does a right job and leaves the... uh, meaning of the text intact, until they do that, then I'll just stick with the Bible that I have and I'll use it. So you can see here, you know, I've just barely barely scratched the surface of this question. I mean, we could still look at all of those arguments concerning the underlying text of the King James and how that differs from those of the modern translations. They are different. There's no question about that. There are differences, and that difference leads to an exclusion of things like the Johannine comma. So that's question number one. Do we include it or we exclude it? And I come down on the side that we ought to include it. Now, there's a second question that's asked, or should be, is Trinitarian doctrine diminished without it? Now, verse number 7 says that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now, there is a verse that very clearly teaches Trinitarian doctrine. And if we left that verse out, would we be in danger of losing the doctrine of the Trinity? 
Well, there are some who say that the modern translators have of the newer editions or new translations that omit the Johannine comma do that purposely and they do it in order to damage the doctrine of the Trinity. Now that's a statement that I don't believe because I happen to know many preachers that don't use the King James and yet they're still rock solid on the Trinity. And they may use a New American Standard Version. They might use the English Standard Version that doesn't have this particular verse. But still, they vigorously defend the doctrine of the Trinity without having that verse. We have copies, for instance, of the Gospel of John that we give out as tracts. We don't give out the entire Bible, but we do have copies of the Gospel of John. Well, could we prove the Trinity out of the Gospel of John? Well, we certainly could. The exclusion of verse 7 of 1 John chapter 5 has no bearing on whether uh, we can find the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. A very simple text like Matthew 28 verse 19 proves the Trinity where Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And that's a verse that puts all three, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost on an equal plane. We could use 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. That's just one of many, many texts that we have in Scripture that ascribe the works of God the Father in an equal way, both to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to abandon the doctrine of the Trinity if we don't have 1 John 5, 7. But the good thing about this is we don't have to abandon the Johannine comma because we do have the King James Version, and it is an accurate translation. And it's a verse here that we have that absolutely nails down without question the record that God has given of Jesus Christ, that he is part of the Trinity, that he is God. There is deity found in that verse. Now, let me go on to the last part of the message, and we're hopefully going to get done just a little bit early tonight. Uh, Number three is the implication of the text. So we have uh, the interpretations, and we have the implication of the text here. Uh, There's one witness that we have not yet discussed, and we haven't included this one. We haven't talked about it yet because we accepted this witness as being non-controversial. Now, the water and the blood, that poses some difficulty. But I said in the beginning that the third witness is not difficult for people to agree on. Verse 6 says in the last part, And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. So what is the first implication of the truth of that scripture? Well, I think uh, we could say that we have a sure foundation of faith. And I guess that we can maybe say in a better way, we have a more sure foundation of faith. You see, because if we back up and we take time and consider a little bit more the witnesses of Christ that are in the Bible, then we would have to consider the entire formidable body of proof that's presented by all of the witnesses. For example, the greatest prophet that ever lived said that Jesus is the Christ He said he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that was John the Baptist. So there uh, you have John the Baptist, a great prophet that witnessed to it. Then the works of Christ bear witness to him. Jesus said this in John 5, But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which your Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. 
And we can consider the testimony of the disciples. And that's what John did in the first chapter. He said, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. And the disciples were called upon to do the very thing that John did in that first chapter. And that was to give witness or testimony concerning Christ. In the very last conversation that Jesus had with his disciples before he went to the cross, he said in John fifteen twenty seven, and ye also shall bear witness because ye have been with me from the beginning. But despite that evidence, there were people that didn't believe. And so John argues against those people. They said, we don't believe the secondary evidence. Uh, We don't believe what you say. We don't believe the witness concerning the works of Christ. We don't believe that you personally saw him and watched him and that your information is credible. And this is why John comes back and he says, well, okay, let's skip all the secondary evidence. What does God say about him? How did God testify of him? And then he comes with this irrefutable proof that's made known to us in an unmistakable way. And that proof is the Holy Spirit who is God and who is alive and came into the world to testify of him. And that's what Jesus said would happen. He said, this is the Holy Spirit's work to testify of me. Verse number 6 says, it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. And Jesus said that would happen. John 15, 26, he said, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. John 16, verses 12 to 14, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. Now, what's the point of all of that? Well, the Holy Spirit witnesses about Christ, and he doesn't witness about him with visual displays. He doesn't write it in 1,000-foot letters across the sky. The Holy Spirit is an inner witness of the truth of Jesus. He convicts us of sin and he causes us to have faith in Christ. So if you don't believe that Jesus is the eternal God and you don't know him and you don't know the forgiveness of your sins, then the Holy Spirit is not alive in you. How do we know who Jesus is? Well, the Holy Spirit testifies by indwelling the believer, by teaching us, by leading us into truth, which in itself is actually a far better presence than having Jesus in the flesh present with us. When the disciples went out on that first missionary journey that we studied in, in uh, Matthew chapter 10, they didn't have Jesus with them. They were in one location and Jesus was in another. And so if they wanted to be with Jesus, they had to go where Jesus was. But we have a distinct advantage over that because we don't have to be where Jesus is. He's always where we are. And that's because He lives in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's there indwelling us. And that Spirit testifies to us over and over and over again, and day after day after day until the day that we die, that we are the children of God. And then when we finally do die, we'll be in the presence of God, and that's when our faith ends in sight. So we have a more sure foundation of faith. And I mean it's more sure because it's not built upon that secondary evidence. Because the secondary evidence would not even be believed in the first place. 
if the Holy Spirit had not opened our eyes to the truth. And so these people that refused the secondary evidence proved that they were not of God. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And that was the all-important factor to show that the Holy Spirit was in them. Now, I've already explained in earlier lessons that that statement, Jesus is the Son of God, is packed with meaning. And it means that you have to believe every single thing that the Scriptures say about him. So if these people said that the Spirit of God came into a man that was named Jesus, and he was there for a time, and then he left when he went to the cross, these are people without a Savior. If they're right, there is no atonement. If they're right... Every single person in the world has no hope, and every one of us will die and go to the everlasting fires of hell. So you talk about implications, there's some terrible implications. The Scripture says Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. It's by him that we overcome. We're victorious over eternal death because of him. And I'm mighty glad that. I'm glad that God bears witness of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that the Trinity has this whole thing settled and that that's a rock for my faith that I can never be moved from. My faith is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. So God is the witness. He's the ultimate irrefutable confirmation of Christ. And that truth is made known to us by the indwelling personal presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the final implication of this then? The final one is that God is true and men are liars. If you deny the evidence that God gives, then you are a liar. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit more later when we get into verse number 10. And um, we'll just, if you'll just look down there at verse 10 for a moment, it says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record God gave of his son. Now, I don't know your position on this, but I don't want to be one who calls God a liar. And it might not be politically correct, or maybe that's not the word, religiously correct, or kosher. Maybe that's a good word I could use. It's, it, it's, uh, that, it might not be good for me to say this, but all of those people like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and the cults are liars. And this is what liars do. They attack the deity of Christ. This is what this whole thing is about. They call God a liar because he testified of his son and they don't believe what God says about it. And so the conclusion of that is they don't have the Holy Spirit and they don't have the Savior. They don't have eternal life. And next time we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about that particular aspect of it. We're going to continue. I think the next messages are titled the testimony of God, all of that we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks, three or four weeks, is the testimony of God. But we're going to get down a little bit more specific again and see what the next verses have to say. Who is, who is the one that testified? And what I, what I mean there is, what about the character of the person who testifies? I give you a little bit of, I got time left. I'm not going to keep this whole time. But to give you a little bit of preview of what comes up next is, Uh, John tells us that it's God who testifies of Jesus Christ, and there's a purpose in doing that, is that you have to look at the character of the witness. If you can accept the testimony of men, he says, how much more can you accept the testimony of God? If God says it, you better believe it. And we'll get into that in the next messages. So God has confirmed Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us here tonight and giving us the opportunity to look into your word. And we're so thankful that you have opened up our eyes to the truth. We could be like so many people out here that are confused and listening to people preach that have no idea what they're talking about and attending churches that that, uh, preach against the deity of Jesus Christ and lead people astray. We're just thankful, Lord, that we're not caught in Satan's trap as those people are, and that you've opened our eyes to the gospel of Christ. And Lord, it's not because of who we are or any good that we've done. It's by your mercy and grace that you've done this. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do the same for others, that they would come to know you as Savior. So bless us tonight. We thank you for each one who's come. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.